This podcast is brought to you by BeatStars, the number one marketplace to buy and sell beats. In this episode, our host DJ Payne One speaks to special guests Young Guru and Just the Engineer about recording with Jay-Z and advice on recording major artists. To our pro page users, don't forget to check out our opportunities and challenges on BeatStars World for a chance to work with some of the industry's best creators. If you're not a ProPage member, but would like to try it out, use the code PODCAST for a 30-day free trial. And of course, don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Enjoy the show. And just like that, we're live. Shout out to everybody still tuned in. Um, I'm seeing a lot of comments continuing to come in. My name is DJ Payne One. Welcome to day two of the Beat Stars Summit 2020. Uh, remember, there's a whole lot going down at Beat Stars. They made a lot of announcements in the last couple of, uh, of months, including Beat Stars distribution, including the Sony ATV publishing admin option. Check out www.beatstars.world for everything, um, especially a lot of the racial justice initiatives that that they've. Uh, uh, helped incorporate into the platform which i think is a first um and and you know a lot of people would love to be a part of that so to learn more go to www.beatstars.world uh without further ado we have an amazing panel i see people are already ready um this will be archived this this will be recorded this will be archived so you'll um, be able to rewatch it at a later time um but let me Thank the two panelists that I have right here in front of me. Um, we have Just the Engineer, who's recently been nominated for a Grammy. We also have the legendary Young Guru. Um, both of them are here to share their time and knowledge with all of us. This is an interactive conference, so feel free to ask questions throughout the conversation. I'm going to try to keep track of them and um, in- incorporate those into the conversation. But um, first and foremost... Welcome to both of you. Thanks to both of you. Um, hope you're both doing well. Thank, thank you. So um, to kick things off, um, and I'll ask Just the Engineer to go first and then Young Guru second. Shout out the, the social media so people can follow you and keep uh, up with, with all of your new projects and um, hopefully be able to communicate with you and, and join the larger conversation. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I'll start off here. I mean, my name is Justin Engineer. Um, I'm originally from up north in Connecticut, spent some time in Connecticut, spent some time in Florida. Uh, I was out in Atlanta for four years, uh, but I'm an audio engineer, recording, mixing. Um, leave the mastering to the real mastering engineers there. But, uh, yeah, just kind of uh, moving around, uh, taking advantage of the Internet, you know, and everything that BeatStars has to offer as far as uh, mixing for upcoming artists, established artists, and really just uh, giving the opportunity to everyone out there across the internet. So what what is your social media for people to follow along? It is uh, Just The Engineer, J-U-S, exactly how it's spelled, Just The Engineer. Okay, appreciate that. And uh, Young Guru, good morning, sir. How are you feeling? Good morning. I'm good, man. Um, so for me, the social on Instagram is youngguru763, uh, and on Twitter it's young underscore guru. Okay, everybody follow and uh, stay in touch with our panelists. This this day is just as much about networking as it is about uh, having a conversation and, and gathering information. <clears throat> um, so let me start off with this question. I've noticed um, 
both of you have something in common that you're both, in addition to being engineers and, you know, award-winning engineers at that, you're also music producers and you have backgrounds in, in music production. Um, how, how did engineering become such a big part of your art form? Um, I would say for me, out of necessity, you know, I'm, I'm a little older. Um, I'm 46. So it was that time period when hip hop wasn't really taken seriously by a lot of like older rock engineers. And it was me getting pissed off, uh, like in the late (laughs) 80s when I was trying to do sessions and people weren't really taking what I was doing seriously. So it was like taking forever for the engineer to like load stuff into the sampler. Back then we were using like the 950, you know, and the SP uh, 1200. And it was just like my way of kind of moving that guy out of the way. So I wasn't wasting my money. You know, I used to do everything I could to, to save up money um, to go in the studio. So then if I'm paying my money and then the engineer doesn't even know how to work the equipment because he's like, you know, used to doing rock sessions where he's just setting up mics, it was pissing me off. So that was sort of my thing. That plus um, engineering just in general as a whole is part of my life. Uh, from fixing bikes to fixing VCRs back then to just, you know, knowing how systems work. But, you know, trying to combine the two things of, of my love for making music and my love for just engineering is, is what sort of drove me in that direction. So just let me follow up on that quick. What is, cause this is something throughout my career as a producer and as a member of a rap group um, early on, I, I struggled with from, from that same perspective, I didn't turn around and become, you know, a, a big time engineer at all. But what I did notice was that, and in talking to other engineers, um, now yourself, um, also people like uh, like Nasty over at Pro Era, um, and, and uh, my man Steve too, who did a lot of the Mob Deep stuff. There's a very specific sound that engineers specialize in. So how would you how would you describe the difference between a hip hop engineer's sound and a and a you know a classic you know, traditional engineer that's used to tracking, you know, live sessions or, or rock groups? Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, for me, I think, um, I think there's just different, different elements in hip hop that are more important, uh, to, you know, the recording process, to the mix and just capturing the vibe. Uh, I know, you know, I did go to school for engineering and while I was in school, they didn't focus on hip hop at all. They were more focused on the live bands and, um, you know, I think there's just different elements to the mix that, you know, a rock band is going to be looking for that a hip hop artist, you know, you know, like, you know, 808s, the bass, the vocals having, you know, the clarity that you want. I think it's just different from, you know, different genres of music. Yeah, I think, I think, um, one, you know, when you, when you become an engineer, you learn music in general, right? But then if you, you know, are specific to your genre, um, because I do all types of genres, but you know, in hip hop, it, it is that thing of kind of like being there to help write the rule book of, of like what things are supposed to sound like. Um, you know, again, same thing as what Justin said. I think the 808 at the bottom end is, is the main part that I think is different from any other form or, or genre of music. And I think people have to be careful of when they're when they're hearing certain people say, you know, tips and tricks and things of that nature of like what type of music does that apply to. But I think for hip-hop, it's mainly the bottom end. Um, and then I think effect-wise, you know, vocally, I love what, like, Justin, people like that out of Atlanta are doing, you know, just over the past couple years of, 
the the vocal effects that come about, you know, and and then sometimes we as hip hop engineers we have to master that art of, of dealing with the two track when you know we don't get a a, a, a fully fleshed out uh, session. You know, I would prefer to have that, but sometimes you don't you know you don't get that. So I think that's an art that you know us hip hop, if you want to put it that way, guys have sort of like figured out and mastered is how to, is how to work with two tracks. So those are those are some of the things. Um, but again, it's just. It's just having an ear and listening to the music um, and also evolving over time because, it, you know, the music evolves. So some of the techniques and things that I learned way early on are completely different now. Um, and some things are the same, but with better tools. You know, like the tools just continuously get better and better and better and allow me to be faster in what I'm doing. So just to answer your question, I think that's the main thing between us and different genres. So, Jess, let me let me follow up. And, and throw that question back to you because I know that you're still currently licensing licensing beats through the BeatStars platform. I actually found that out yesterday evening. Yes. Um, would you say you're splitting your time between production and engineering, or has one kind of taken over? It's definitely yeah. The, the engineering is definitely taken over. I think you know for me, my passion was the engineering. Um, you know, I always had an interest in you know, science and technology and the computers and then a passion in music. So the engineering definitely just blended the two together. I just found myself in a lot of these opportunities where you're in the studio, you know, waiting for a producer to show up or a producer didn't show up and they look at the engineer and they go, Hey, do you have any beats? And at first I was going, no, I don't have anything. But then it got to the point where I was like, Hey, you know, if I have some downtime here between sessions, let me just try to make something. And, you know, there's been opportunities that have came out of it. Uh, I think the first beat that I ever sold to an artist on Atlantic records came from BeatStar and just posting it on there. So it's more just something that I do, you know, when the mixes and recording sessions have some downtime, just because the opportunity is there and you got to be ready for it. What was that? Just can you, in a, in a nutshell, tell that story about getting that, that Atlantic Records placement off of a, a studio session? Because I think a lot of producers are wondering how to get to these artists. And it's to the point where you're seeing a lot of people try to sell them dreams, you know, like an industry contact list for $100 or a... Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, some kind of internet bot that 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 sends you know hello messages to all different types of rappers randomly. So what, for you, what was your route to that first placement? So I mean, I hate to say because it, it sounds like everyone else's, but it it came from YouTube. I mean, I was so there was at one point where the recording selection slowed down, and I just obviously I need I had bills to pay, I needed to bring some money in, so I just got on top of making beats. And every single morning, I was making a beat, I was posting it, putting it out there, and I think on YouTube, an artist from Atlantic Records found it, reached out to me through BeatStars, um, and it just came from there. But it just really was consistency and just putting stuff out there. And you know, I'm not somebody you know I'm more confident in my engineering than I am in my producing, but. You know, I don't think you're ever going to be really confident in your work until you put it out there and you start getting, you know, you're going to get some positive reactions, some negative reactions. But it was really just me saying, you know what, I got nothing to lose, putting it out there and something came of it. Switch switching gears, then um, I know I've read interviews with, with you, Young Guru, about your role in the process of the, the song creation. Mm-hmm. So beyond just focusing on the technical aspect of of producing a record um as an engineer how would you describe your role in the music production process start to finish 
I think my role is a little different um, from other people because a lot of, and it's not exclusive, but a lot of my career people know me for the work with like Rockefeller and, and JD and things of that nature. So it became a situation where I'm highly involved in, in everyone's life in terms of the, the music making process. So, you know, for a good, like I would say, like a good 10 to 12 years, we were dominating and doing things in baseline. So everything was, it was sort of this Motown mentality of let's consolidate everything to this one place uh, so that we could have some sort of quality control. And of course, it wasn't me by myself, but it's me in the recording process being able to be honest and ask specific questions about where the artist is going and sort of direct that career, you know, in certain ways, whether or not that's, you know, Freeway or the Young Guns or Beanie Siegel or Cameron or Jay-Z or, you know, any of those people. I'm sort of the first person there that's like, do you think that this, you know, this vocal is good enough? Do you think that this is the right beat? Are we going in the right direction? You know, and not only is it a good you know, verse or a good beat, is it what we need at this particular time? You know, um, my, my friend Salam Remy said something that, that really stuck with me one time where he was like, you need the right beat for the right artist at the right time. Like, those three things have to be there in order for it to be sort of a hit. It's like it could be a really good beat before the wrong artist. And I think that's a that's a good thing for up and coming producers who may sometimes wonder why their beat gets denied or they're like, yo, this beat is really good. But then the artist doesn't take it and they start to feel like, well, what's wrong with my beat? And it's like, well, it might not have been the right beat for that artist, you know, and then it's got to be the right beat for that artist at the right time. Like, you kind of got to know what's going on, you know, in, in, in the music at the given time. So that's that's more of my role, you know, outside of the technical, outside of picking the right microphone and the right preamp and, like, you know, um, knowing how to compress certain things or, or you know, Jay-Z's vocal is going to be smooth. He's that type of, of rapper who doesn't, it's, it's not going to be uh, the same way as if I'm recording, like, M.O.P. and they're almost, like, screaming at me. You know what I mean? The compression is going to be completely different. Um, so it's, it's those sort of choices that are outside of technical that really help direct uh, certain artists. And sometimes you hear it, you know, it'll make it to a record where you'll listen to Freeway's first album and he'll be like, okay, Goo, you want me to mess with this? And you, you hear him saying it, which means we had a conversation about where he should go on a, on a specific beat. And sometimes it's like, we have 10 records already. What do we need to fill in for the rest of the album for this to be a complete body of work? Or you know, switching gears now where sometimes artists aren't putting out complete bodies of work, where we're just putting out singles or just songs on the internet to gain attention in between records, sort of like what mixtapes used to do, you know, back in the day. You're in between album cycles, but you want to stay hot. So you're just throwing out records, but are you throwing out the right records? So it's, it's the mental process of are we doing the right thing? And you need somebody in there that you trust. So I'm sort of like the first line of defense of uh, raising my hand and being like, nah, you can do better than that. So I I personally feel like that should also be a, a producer's role, even if they don't engineer. Absolutely. Um, ha- having said that, though, for me, in my experience, it, it started when I was in high school, just having people come by. I wasn't getting paid anyway, so I was already sick of these people in my house all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, if they're offended by what I'm telling them, they can leave. I'm not here to just, you know, spend my whole day wasting time on their project. So that, that's kind of how I developed that. How did you get to the point where you felt comfortable? Cause a lot of producers don't just flat out saying that's not the right take. You can do better. Try it again. Or this, this beat isn't you. 
or, you know, your delivery right there just wasn't what it could be? That's a great question and a great point. Um, I came up through a certain school where, like, people like Derek Angeletti, who was part of um, the bad boy team of Puffs producers. So I would look at certain bits and pieces of people's personality. Like, we had some producers in there that were part of the Hitmen that were quiet. And they just, you know, just made beats all day. And you would look at Derek, and Derek would be the one, like, literally telling the notorious B.I.G. that that's not good enough. You know, he, he, his personality sort of leads to him directing a lot of things. And I would take those things from his personality and apply it to when I was doing my sessions. Um, but it's also me being comfortable with the artists that I work with. You know, sometimes it's about kicking it with them before you even go into the session so that you know who they are, they know who you are. And, and my biggest thing was I never am trying to make you into who I want you to be. I'm trying to make you the best you. So, you know, a lot of times I had to fight things working in record companies and things like that to where a record company might see success with one artist and be like, hey, we need a vet. And it's like, well, there may not be another one of those. And you're going to try to force your artists into this like cookie cutter thing that doesn't exist. So it was it was me getting comfortable with saying I'm trying to design the best you of what I think is the best you. So it also comes from experience of putting out records and seeing what works and what doesn't work. So then the more experience you have, the more comfortable you feel. But one of the great things that we get with technology is being able to like email beats to each other and do things that way. But we also lose this thing of the producer sometimes not being in the room with the actual artist when they're creating the song. So you're right. As the producer, it's not just your job to make the beat. That's a beat maker. As the producer, you're supposed to be in there saying, no, that's not right. You should do it this way. Why don't you try this take again? Your inflection should be this way. Why don't you, you know, pause here, take out a couple words like the like the does and the is, and, you know, it'll make the flow go better. All those things are part of production. So that's how I got comfortable was just doing it over and over. But again, like I'm saying, I was part of a crew, and I'm part of a crew of people that trust me. So it made me uh, just just get into that mode so that when I was stepping in with artists that wasn't part of my crew, I still had that thing in me that tries to make it the best, uh, the best record, but I'm also aware of how I'm speaking to the person. So, you know, I, I have four children, right? I speak to all my children different because of their personality. That's the best way for me to explain it. So I'm trying to get the same point across to my kids, but I may say it different for all of them because their personality is different. And I know that the way that I say it affects how they're going to receive it. So that's the producer's job as well is, is to learn the artist and learn how to communicate with them. That's a, that's a big part of it, but that's a, that's a huge question because some people are iffy if it's your first placement, if it's your first time in with a big artist or just anybody, you get a little nervous on like, well, should I say something? Should I not say something? You know, you're always supposed to say something. So the work, the thing you, you, you don't want is for your art to come out and that's not the way you wanted it to come out. So it's, it's better for you in the beginning to just get those things out and try to work with the artist and they'll appreciate that even if you don't agree. You know, even if the artist is just like, hey, I want to do this, or I want to do that. You argue about it for a minute and they still go with their way. It's, it's something where they now know you're not just a yes man. Nobody wants just this yes man around them. And, and you know, you have to have that sort of relationship with the artist to be able to just talk to them. So let me, let me throw 
um, that original question back to you, Jess. Uh, what, what would you say your role is throughout the whole process? As just you know, because obviously you're making beats too. So I'm, I assume that you find yourself in situations where you are engineering a session for a beat that you produced as well. And so I'm, I'm sure you're going through a lot of uh, you know the the whole process in your head of being a visionary, and then also. Oh yeah, engineering, yeah. Uh, but then it's all hitting you at once. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, like Ru said, like a lot of those points in there. You know, how do you talk to the artist and just reading the room? Um, I think a lot of times, you know, when I start off, you know, as just playing the engineer role. Um, I think in today's day, you know, there's so many schools now that are just pushing out engineers. You know, you go to school for six months, and next thing you know, you're an engineer after six months. So a lot of times when these artists are booking the sessions, unfortunately, they're really just expecting me to be quiet and press the buttons. So in my mind, one, that's what I need to do. But I also need to make sure that I do that better than anyone else they've ever seen. So that when I do open my mouth and, you know, like we were saying, it's how you say it to people. I'm not going to say to somebody, you can do that better. So I might say, hey, do you think you can do that better? And they might go, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that better. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then they're hyped up because they're thinking, oh, man, he's really listening to me. He thinks I can do better. Let's push this even further. And it's really building that relationship with the artist that you're working with. And some of these artists, you know, they may not want your input. And it's nothing personal. I mean, you have a role that you're playing in that studio or wherever you are at. And you got to remember that sometimes you just need to play that role. You know, with somebody like me, you know, where I focus mainly on engineering, a lot of times there's another producer and there are multiple producers. And when they're making a beat, a lot of times it's not my spot to go, hey, change that 808, change this sound, change that sound. Because they're going to look at me and go, you know, it's your, you know, it's your turn when we pass you the beat and you turn on the microphone, that's when you go to work. So it's really just reading the room, knowing who you're with and, you know, speaking up and knowing how you're saying things to people. Cause this is people's art. You know, it's our production. It's our engineering. It's the artist's lyrics. It's the artist's music. So, you know, we do take these things personally. So just watch how you're saying things. There. I think to add on to what Jeff is saying, and the way you said that is perfect, phrasing things in a question alleviates a lot of problems. Like if you're saying a definitive thing, sometimes you may just want to ask it in a phrase it in a question. Or um, there's a very famous engineer who has like this big Mickey Mouse in um, the side of the studio. And that Mickey Mouse is there to remind you of uh, questions or fantasy, right? That's what the that's what the paper plane represents for us at Rock Nation, right? Imagination. That paper plane is you folding a piece of paper and imagining you know this being a plane. So I'm saying that to say that we instead of you going, yo, we should use this microphone. It's like, what if we use this sort of microphone? Or what if we tried a different 808? Or what if we tried it this way? Works better than all these like definitive, like you did that wrong. Let's do it over, you know. And and, and phrasing it in a in a thing of well, let's try this because that's that you know you never know what could happen when you're just like. That's the creativity part. Let's try this. And and what just said is perfect. It's like sometimes you have artists that they know exactly what they want to do. They're very well trained. They have this thing that they're doing and you're just quiet and, and, and you're recording and that's all you're there for. There's some artists that have never been in a studio before. It's just, you know, some girl that sings really good in church and, and she's never, you know, she, she's in her comfort zone. But some people, when they see that red light come on, you know, in the studio, they get nervous. So, you may have to be the person that says, okay, um, can everybody clear the room so this person can feel more comfortable? Or, you know, 
instead of instead of asking that question in front of this rapper's whole crew, say, yo, can I talk to you in the hallway real quick? And then they're going to be more apt to give you a real answer instead of trying to keep the, you know, this, this bravado up in front of their crew. So you got to be real, like you said, read the room, be real aware of what's going on and who's in the actual room. So those things are talents that they don't teach in the school, right? The school is the school is there for you to learn how to like move the chess pieces, but that doesn't mean that you're a master chess player. You just know how to move the pieces. Now somebody got to teach you strategy of chess, you know, and hopefully that person has played a lot of chess and has gone up against masters and has been in situations before, and they're like, yo, when somebody moves the rook this way, look out for this. So that's that's what kind of I can equate it to. When you, when you graduate from the engineering school, you're basically just now you just know how to move the pieces. But I got to teach you the, the, the psychology of actually running a session and getting the best performance out of the artist. So let's let's talk about some more technical uh, questions having to do with engineering. I know from the outside looking in, engineering is is a pretty unclear and, and oftentimes um, myth-filled world. And so when I spoke to, and shout out to Ilmine, he's in the chat. What's going down, sir? Big up, Ilmine. <laughs> when I asked on Twitter what producers' concerns with engineering were, it, it kind of reminded me of where I was a long time ago. Um, oh, shout out to Mac Joseph as well. Uh, he says, shout out to Guru for coming through to visit Isotope. And that you're amazing. So shout out to him. Um, you know, when I when I first started, I really didn't understand engineering, and a lot of people don't. And that was evident in a lot of the the questions I was getting. One big question that kept coming up was, "What is mixing versus mastering?" And I think not just producers, but also recording artists, and even some you know beginner engineers get those two terms conflated. What? is a way that you separate those those two processes and, and, and um, concepts in your minds. Just go ahead. I, I feel like I'm over-talking, so I'll go after you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've definitely had people ask this over and over. I mean, the only way that I can try to explain it for the people that have no knowledge in engineering at all is – I try to, uh, I guess, compare it to a photographer. Um, you know, you have a photographer that goes out there, he snaps your picture. That's the recording process. He doesn't just snap that picture and hand it over to you and say, all right, you're done. Here's your wedding picture. He's then going to go in and he's going to touch up little things on there. He's going to, you know, adjust the brightness, adjust the colors. That's your mixing process. After that, he's going to go through and maybe put a filter or, you know, something over the entire image. That's your mastering process there. You're taking that final mix of the song and I guess from what they taught us at school is you were making it as loud as it can possibly go without getting any type of distortion, um, you know, messing up any elements of the mix and also maybe fixing up some of the little things that they couldn't get done in the mix, you know, whether it be that low end or that high end or just making things radio ready. Um, so you're pretty much you're taking that final project and putting that, you know, final layer of polish on there. Right. Um, traditionally, there's, you know, traditionally the mix was you have a bunch of instruments as a song, vocals, all this other stuff. You put it together as a song, right? You're EQing, you're compressing, you're, you know, a, a producer is deciding on drops, um, all of these things inside of a mix to make a song. Traditionally, we will be doing this in the context of an album. So you may have had 
three or four different engineers mixing different records, you know, that are all going to go on one album, right? Um, they could have been done in different rooms at different times. You know, they're going to, the, the volume of these are going to sound different. So back when we were making CDs, you know, you would master what we call in, into a red book format. And not to overcomplicate it, but I'm, as the mastering engineer, now taking 12 different mixes and I'm making them um, sound like one cohesive thing. I'm making sure that the volumes are all the same or relatively the same. I'm making sure that EQ sort of match so that this sounds like, you know, one cohesive album. Mastering engineers back in the day were also doing things like putting the P and Q codes on it, which was like when you put the CD in, it says number one and it has the title and, and like have all of those things were done at the mastering process. So me as the mixer, I was making sure that I gave enough space to the mastering engineer for him to be able to add EQ or add compression and those sort of things. And, you know, I was letting the track breathe enough that a mastering engineer could now put all of those things together. And like you said, it's sort of like a final um, shining up before an album. But we also live in a world now where people aren't necessarily just making an album, right? You may make one song and master that one song. So the mixing process is me getting it together as a vision of what I want the song to be. The mastering engineer is, is giving that final step. And a lot of times I like to give my music over to someone else so that there's fresh ears on the mix. If I'm sitting through a whole project and I've you know mixed all of these different things, I may want someone else that I trust to listen to it and say, okay, well, here's where you were making mistakes. And not even just mistakes, it's perspective. You know, they're listening in a different room. They're listening, you know, from a different perspective. They haven't sat in with me when we were arguing about the snare for three hours or whatever. You know, like those things that we sort of concentrate on, someone has an outside perspective. So mastering for me is like I built the car and this person is now deciding like, okay, it's going to be, this red candy paint, and we're going to put this stripe right here. Same car, but it's like, what color am I going to make the car? What rims am I putting on the car? It's that final thing before I put it out in the showroom to try to sell it. Got it. So, um, God, we have a ton of, of questions coming in. So shout out to that. A lot of it has to do with, you know, the DAW wars. You know, what's what's the better DAW? What's... what's for mixing and for, for such and such a purpose. Um, the one that you know, that's I, the best one. The best DAW is the one that you know. All You know, like, it, it doesn't matter which one you work in, it's, it's which one you master. I just put up a, a, a tweet the other day where I was like, it's better to just master a couple of plugins than to be this guy that's like, every time a new plugin comes out, I got to buy the new thing, I got to buy the new thing. You know, as engineers, a lot of times we have to have certain plugins because I get sessions with, you know, various plugins on it. So I want to make sure that I have all of those plugins. But to really answer that question, it's it's figure out the, the doll that works best for you or the one you like the most, and then just work on that one. I don't care if it's Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, whatever it is, you know, just master whatever it is. And then find out, you know, you can dibble and dabble and, and like, see which one is more comfortable for you or which one works better for you. But you can mix in any of the dogs. So which which one do you like? Which one do you master? Which one do you spend the most time with? Which one are you going beyond just watching a couple videos on YouTube and after you've kind of figured out how to work it, you know, actually reading the manual? I don't think anybody does that anymore. Like just actually sitting down and like on a Sunday, you know, while you're sitting there, just read the manual, read chapter, do a chapter a day. 
and you'll start to find little things that aren't talked about on YouTube because a lot of times people are so concerned with like tips and tricks and things of that nature that you don't get to the core bread and butter of what this dog could do. So, you know, it, it just depends. Um, as an engineer, you got to kind of be aware of what the major things are. So, yes, if, you know, the, this percentage of your stuff is coming in Pro Tools and you're going to have to learn Pro Tools, but... You know, if this percentage of your stuff is coming in Ableton, then learn that. If this percentage of your stuff is coming in Fruity Loop, learn that. So it's, it's, it's the real answer to that is the one that you know the best. So in the end, you're, they're all going to do all the same things. So as long as you got a good sound that comes out of it, that's all that matters. So here's a question for both of you then, because um, you used a, 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 the phrase good sound. Obviously, a ton of this, and you both commented on this as well. Um, you went to school, you learned how to move the, ch- the chess pieces, but you didn't learn how to become chess masters. Right. Learning how to become a chess master, metaphorically speaking, period. I mean, there are people who understand on, on the production and beat making end exactly how to make a beat. They know all the steps. They know the technical elements that go into it. They just haven't figured out how to make a good beat yet. So... Just just mentioned making a song sound good. How did it come to the point where you were able to hone in on that X factor? Um, and what I mean to say is, how did you train your ears to actually know the difference between a good mix and a bad mix? How did you train your ears and your brain to the point where you're able to walk into a session and analyze what this particular artist with this particular style and voice needs on a sonic and technical level? I mean, for me, it just took time. It took a lot of bad mixes, a lot of bad recording, uh, a lot of making mistakes. Um, you know, the first studio I interned at in Atlanta, I was there for a year, unpaid, scrubbing floors, you know, doing food runs. But being able to stand in the background and watch that engineer work and record and interact with these artists and just seeing the little tips and tricks, not tips and tricks, but the little, the little things that they would do during the session and then being able to ask them after saying, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And not really copying what other people are doing, but seeing how you can implement in maybe some of the things that they do into yours. And then just over time, you know, I've been, you know, I'm 30 going on 31 years old now. I've probably been at this maybe for like 10 years now. So it's just time after time, just doing it over and over and over. And I think eventually when you're a few years in and you listen back to your stuff a few years ago, you're going to hear night and day difference and know that you're at least making it somewhere. Yeah. I think for me, it was just, it's just listening to good music, you know, listening to music that you feel, you know, sounds good. So when I was coming up, I, I was, it, there's a couple of things. One is listening to music and I would choose albums that I thought were really good and reference them in a lot of different places. So, you know, that was me listening to Bob Power and what he was doing with, like, Tribe and people like that. And then, you know, the clarity that Dr. Dre started putting into our music. Like, back then, um, we, we sort of, like, had the bottom end together in hip-hop, but I thought, like, the top end needed, you know, better adjustment. And then Dr. Dre comes and just starts smacking with, like, these incredible mixes that was, like, really heavy but really clear and then had a lot of... Um, movement and 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 when you know i went through this phase of when hip-hop was really mono and everything was sort of like in the center and then we got to a point of like sort of thinking like an orchestra and spreading things out and then watching the movements over time 
So it was like, you know, as I'm trying to develop my sound, my sound was sort of like me purposely saying, I'm going to have this mixture between what Bob Power and what Dr. Dre sound like. And then me studying sort of all of the things that came out of Atlanta and being like, okay, let me study how these 808s are done. What are they doing to make this music sound like this, right? When, when the Atlanta movement just sort of took over because it was different from what I was doing. And that's when I perk up. That's when I'm like, okay, this is outside of my thing. So let me start studying that. And then I would just keep studying good engineers. Like, you know, Ali's vocal tricks, when he's doing stuff for Kendrick, I'm studying like, okay, what is he doing per se to make these vocals sound like this or these effects sound like this? Or I'm studying 40 to be like, what is he doing on Drake's vocals to do this, 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 and this? And in my... I, I kind of like to guess at first because then I come up with things that may not be the way that they're doing it, but it's something new for me. Then I'll eventually, you know, I have the, the, the bonus of being able to like literally ask those people, like, what did you do on this specific mix? But the second part of it, which I think is just so missing right now, which is the reason why things like this are necessary, is that I came up at a time when studios were just booming, right? Especially in New York City, those things aren't around anymore. And you sort of lose that thing of like us being able to like in one day I could walk around in, in the studio and just see who was there and say hi to people. And I'm interacting with five or six different world-class engineers and they're working on five or six different types of music. So it was normal for me to be walking down the hallway in the hit factory. And it's like, I run into 50 cent and then in the hallway, we're having a conversation with Tony Bennett, you know, like those things would go on in New York. So it was like me going through all those different rooms and saying hi to people and keeping a good rapport with a lot of the engineers allowed me to see what they were doing. Um, and then just the blessing of me being connected with, say, a Chucky Thompson who purposely put me in a room with other engineers. So it's like I'm, I'm watching what Joe Quindy's doing. You know what I mean? I'm watching what Tony Maserati is doing, like live on mixes. So... Those were the things that allowed me to go, okay, this is a good mix. This is a bad mix. These are some of the things that need to be fixed, and this is how you do them. You know, and, and, and also that thing of even in the recording process, I wish that sort of thing was still around where when you used to intern at these different places, when there wasn't a session, you could literally go grab somebody's reel and put the song up and try to make your own mix. Like, like assistants used to do that all the time and be like, okay, let me see how this person got to that point. Like, sort of like what people do now with stems. If you can get stems of, of certain, you know, records that you've seen and try to recreate those mixes. Or, you know, I had the experience of just opening up a mic closet in the Hit Factory or Sony or something like that. And every microphone in the world is there. And I could literally just test out microphones and see the difference in the sounds of those microphones. You know, I just wish that that thing was still alive for people nowadays. So, that's that's part of the reason why, again, these things are so important to try to impart that that sort of thing that you don't learn anymore by actually being in those facilities. You know, if I can add on to one thing uh, Guru mentioned too earlier is those manuals for plugins. I know uh, maybe years ago there was at one point where something happened with my computer and I deleted all <laughs> of my cracked plugins. And all I was stuck with was the stock plugins, but I had to learn those in and out. And I had to pull up manuals on each one to see what does this knob do? What does that knob do? And that really taught me how to go in there and fine tune what I wanted. So then when you get these plugins that you're paying extra for, 
you know, when they only have two knobs that do what you need to do, you know exactly what you want out of that sound. So, I mean, read those manuals, and especially nowadays, you could download a manual and you could search through the manual in a PDF. You don't need to, you know, buy the book and read through it there. So, you know, we got all the tools that we need. You just got to, you got to go look for them and do some research and read a book. And, and, and those plugins are really like, you know, the, the, it's almost like the, um, the old Gangstar album where it's like, yo, we, we, we just update our process. You know what I mean? It's still Guru and Premiere, but we just update the process. So these these new plugins are, are just our calculators to me. You know what I mean? When we were adding by hand before, and it's just like now we have plugins that allow us to like, you know, have a calculator. So it's like, do I know how to add? Yeah, but if I work as an accountant for a Fortune 500, I need a calculator and a computer because it, it allows my work to speed up. So those things that we used to like, you know, do that took forever. If I'm, you know, if I had a vocal, right. And I'm trying to do subtractive EQing, which I, I would encourage a lot of people to learn how to do right. To, to, I don't necessarily get a vocal and just start adding things on, which I see a lot of engineers do. I analyze it and I go, what's wrong with the vocal? What do I need to take out? Right. It's too muddy. Okay. Well, let me go to this. Now here comes my knowing how to move the pieces, my, my knowledge of, well, what's the muddy range, Right. You know what I mean? So I'm going in between like 200 and 400 and I'm like searching. And if I'm on analog gear, I would literally find that frequency or turn it up to plus 10 and sweep through frequencies to really hear where the mud is coming from. And then I would take that thing that's on plus 10 and turn it down and take it out. Right. But that's a real like super static thing. I only can do this one frequency with this one range compared to the tools that we have now that can literally like follow whatever the frequency is in that particular thing. Or we have dynamic EQs now that not only can I dip it, but I can compress it and tell it like, so we have these hyper calculated things now that allow me to do things way faster than what I was doing before. Or there may be some things now that I don't need to compress because I got clip gain. You know, one of the one of the greatest things is like going through and going, okay, before I even compress this vocal, why don't I even it out with clip gain? I can I can literally sit there and go, okay, this part, this this utterance, not even the whole word, just this part of the word is too loud. So let me just highlight that and clip gain it down with everything else. So now I'm compressing more for texture than I am for just volume control. So, you know, those are the things that that are like calculators that have allowed my work to speed up. But also, I know the original, you know, idea of what I was doing. So it's like the idea doesn't really change, but the tools have gotten so much better. I see a lot of people talking about the replay of this. So, yeah, BeatStars.World is the this is kind of the one-stop shop for all of this. So, again, I have to mention all the, the, the new um, features with BeatStars, including... Um, Sony ATV publishing admin as well as distribution and then also the racial justice initiatives and the archives of this summit as well as also the fact that I'm on every Thursday, Dame, Dame is on every Monday. All of these sessions are free. They're all equally interactive. We always have guests. We always have topics that are relevant to the conversation for up-and-coming producers. So to pick up on um, this conversation and a lot of the questions that were coming in in the chat, and, you know, rather than jump into the analog versus digital question, I, I guess I'll just kind of specify, are there pieces of analog gear that you still use to this day for any particular reason rather than their, their digital equivalents or their digital emulations? 
I would say first that that let me say overall the analog versus digital is nonsense argument. It's a nonsense argument, right? It's just it's just dumb. It's just like if the analog works for you, use the analog. If the digital works for you, use the digital. It's all about the end sound. The 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 consumer of the music does not care if you use analog, if you use digital, if you mix it on an SSL, if you mix it in a box, if you mix it on a knee, they don't care. They just care about what comes out of the two speakers. So it's about getting to a point where you're comfortable with what you use. I have people that I love that create a sound with all analog gear, right? My, my good friend, Adrian, um, Adrian Young, completely analog studio, gets an incredible sound out of that studio, right? Records the tape. Uh, gets all of the sounds up front. I have friends that work completely digital that get great sounds. So it's not an analog versus digital debate. They are two completely different things, right? Um, but to answer your question, I think I'm more concerned at this point in the analog world with preamps and how, and what I'm getting that goes into the system. So I'm big on you know uh, the 500 series because I think that's great for people when you can buy say an API rack, you know, for 500 or there's, there's plenty of other racks that hold API stuff, which allows, you know, smaller companies to create components that you can put into this rack. And it's sort of something that you could build up over time. Right. So you buy the API rack and then it's like, okay, everybody is, is in this process of saving up money to get something. So your preamp is the greatest thing for, for, for anything. The preamp going into the system, is probably more important than buying that. Now, I don't want to say like buy a cheap microphone, right? But if you're in this thing of where you're, you're, you're minding your dollars and everybody doesn't have all this money to just go, yeah, give me the $10,000 microphone with the $10,000 preamp, you know, you're choosing. So the, the most important thing in that chain is the preamp. You, if you have a more expensive preamp with, let's say, a $500 uh, Rhodes mic or some other mic, you're going to get a better thing than buying the super expensive microphone with the real crappy preamp, right? The preamp is, is, is where I'm concerned. So I just have a smorgasbord in 500 series of different preamps for recording, right? So I'll have two APIs. I'll have two needs. I'll have two SSLs, I, all these different just flavors that people love. And then I, I sort of go into like more esoteric stuff that people don't know. Those are just the big names, but it's like, what fits you? That's one thing. But let's not get it twisted. In the real world, when I'm in the middle of doing everything is love, and um, let's say we're still performing shows for everything is love, and Jay-Z is getting masters back, and we're about to do a show, and he's like, okay, well, let's try two bases on these songs, and the album is supposed to come out this tonight. You best believe I'm grabbing my UAD, and I'm plugging a bass into there, and I'm using the 1073 from UAD, and I'm using the CL1B as a plug-in, and I'm getting it done. I don't have time to go grab physical gear because I'm about to get on stage and DJ. So a lot of it has to do with what situations are you in. So for anybody to say that you can't get it done with just all digital is lying. It's, it's about the sound and what you want and knowing your tool, Right. There, there are some things that come about because you're using analog gear that creates a certain sound. But we're in a time right now where 
we can emulate that sound in the digital realm. And I, I just I just don't I'm trying to reinforce this thing of people that have this fight between analog versus digital. Right. It's not they're, they're just two different things. And it's, and it's what you pick, you know, that that makes the sound. It's not it, it's you. It's not necessarily just like, oh, just because I got an analog piece of gear, it's going to sound warm. No, it has to be the right piece of gear used in the right way. Yeah, I mean, t- yeah, and I'm I'm not qualified to say this, but I got the um, a 500 series within the last eight months, um, and I and I have a I put a Neve in it, a, a 500 series Neve preamp, and it changed my sound. And I'm exactly in the situation that you described, where I have the mid range mic that sounded mm-hmm. like a mid range mic when I plugged it directly into my interface with you know the, right, the preamp right. that comes with it. I switched. I I, I Put the money out. It was the end of the tax year. I'm like, I got to spend some money. Got the 500 series um, rack. Got the Neve. Amazing. All I mean, so, night and day difference. So um, now, now I'm recommending just... that more to people. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, I'm not qualified to speak on it. I'm telling you my experience. So uh, Jess, if he's about to blow me out the water with, with, with what I just said. No, so so really I'm good. just going to say to people, I mean, I definitely agree with everything you know, that was said there. But for the people at home that don't have this, don't think the reason your music hasn't gone to that next step is because you need a piece of analog gear at home. Exactly. There are people that are doing this with no analog gear and making it to, you know, the levels that, you know, we all, you know, hope to once once reach. So don't think, you know, yes, you're, I mean, at least in hip hop, from what I've seen, your most important thing is going to be your vocal chain and how you get that signal into there. You know, if you can do that preamp, if you could do the mic, if you can do some analog compression to get the best signal into there, then yes, do it. But don't think that your song isn't doing what it needs to do because you don't have that. You know, and like we were saying, you know, I'm a big fan of UAD. I mean, their plugins a lot of times can emulate the stuff I've done, you know, side by side in the studio with things. And like he was saying, your average consumer isn't going to go, oh man, this song would have been better if you just used a real SSL instead of the UAD one. They're not even going to know what's going on there. You're either going to have a good song or you're not. And yeah, just don't think, you know, the other thing too about digital is a lot of times with this music and how it is nowadays, it is so fast paced, like Uber was saying, where you may need to do something right then and there. You may be waiting at the airport or in a hotel room or in the car, and you're not going to be able to, you know, to pull out all this analog gear. You're going to be able to pull out your laptop, plug in your interface or whatever you need and get it done right there. So that's the benefit to digital that you can just pull it out, get it done and keep on moving instead of having to go back in the studio there. But if you have the option to use that landlog here and it's sitting beside you, try it out and see what you can do there. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's ridiculous that I've been in, you know, three hour long arguments with engineers where we're sitting analyzing, like if, if, if I run this same signal through a 1073, a real one, and does this emulation do exactly what it, it's like, who cares if, if, if you have the 1073 run it through that but to sit there and compare like over and over and we're looking at like charts and the, it has a little bump right yo nobody cares about that is the song good that's all that matters that's all that matters you you have i, I you know I, I could i could play you you know countless beatles songs that were done on four tracks it's like they're good songs you know like that's the whole point and, and we're being technical about it, but I'm just trying to drive that thing home because too many people have this argument about like this. And of course, this analog thing is going to sound different than this digital thing. 
But it's not about that. It's not, it's, that's like comparing apples and oranges. And, 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 and please don't take away from this that Google's saying don't use analog. I, I, would, I would love, I would love to be in a situation where I have all these separated tracks. I'm mixing them on an SSL 4000 because that's my favorite board. I would love to be hitting a preamp before every, you know, for every sound. But that's beautiful. But that's not the reality of our world anymore. It's just not. And, and in the world of like having to do, you know, massive recalls or, or like you said, having to change something on the fly and not being able to, I travel a lot, you know, so I'm not always in the same room. I like to be able to just pull things out, have my laptop, throw on my headphones and be able to roll or even take my laptop situation. A lot of times my laptop has more plugins and is a better system than the computer that's actually in this million dollar studio. So all I'll do is plug my computer into their system. And thank God we have like Thunderbolt stuff like that now where I can just use a Thunderbolt system that connects to whatever their, you know, maybe Pro Tools outputs are. And I can use my laptop and, and instead of their computer. And I'm just hooking up the, the, the HDMI and I'm using the screen and I'm using Bluetooth. And it's the same thing as I was just sitting there using theirs. But my computer has all the plugins on it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing of being more comfortable. When you, when you pay to go into a major studio at this point, what you're paying for is the room. You're paying for a room that has been designed, treated, you know, understanding what frequencies do to a room, the acoustics of a room, and that's what you're paying for. You're paying for a perfectly tuned acoustic environment to where you can hear properly versus like sitting in your room that may be a box or a square, which a cube is the the worst acoustic place that you can sit in and mix music, right? A perfectly done square, which a lot of people's bedrooms or home studios are. So we go through all this process of like, trying to defeat that with all this acoustic treatment, right? But that's what you're paying for when you walk into a real studio and not just the acoustic treatment of what's going on in the studio. It's also what you're keeping out of the studio, right? So that's what the double walls are for. That's what the raised floor is for. Not only just how it's going to bounce off the wall, but you're keeping radio signals out. You're keeping outside noise out. You're keeping like all of these things are things you don't think about of why you need to actually go into a major studio and then, again, people hate when I say this. I would love to do all of my projects in a major studio, but a lot of people put out great music that they do in their bedroom. So let me let me ask <clears throat> just something, because I know um, Guru gave us a lot of gems about this. Your recent work with, with Travis Scott obviously didn't just happen overnight. You spent a lot of time and... and you know, networked and, and did what you had to do. But leading up to that, what would you say created that situation for you? And then in addition, what allowed you access? I mean, what what was it that you felt you did that gave you that level of legitimacy to, to find yourself in the studio with, you know, a, an artist of that cal- caliber and relevance at that point in his career? Um, it was really just, I mean, putting in the groundwork. Um, I mean, it started off, I moved to Atlanta about four years ago. Um, I started off as an intern, a runner at the studio, um, scrubbing the floors after every session, doing the runs for the artists, and really just staying quiet and showing, you know, the first thing, you know, you know, I tell a lot of engineers, you know, when you intern, 
one, don't expect to jump in the studio or jump on the boards or record anything for a good amount of time. You need to prove first that you know how to take out the trash and that you can scrub, you know, the floors and you can get a food run right. Because if you can't even do that correct, they're not going to even trust you, you know, turning on these preamps and setting up the studio and recording their clients. So it was really just starting at the bottom, working that way up. And, um, you know, as I worked at the studio, I interned, um, I became an engineer there. I was asked to help out with management there. And it was really just engineering there, working with different clients coming in and out and kind of networking with these people and building uh, word of mouth between people. Um, in Atlanta, I started engineering a lot for a lot of producers. Um, and somehow I became one of the go-to guys for producers when they needed to record more than just vocals, when they wanted to bring in, you know, saxophone players and guitar players and, you know, somebody, I don't, you know, why, I don't know why they preferred me, but, you know, I think it was because just of the vibe that I was able to capture in the studio. And, you know, sometimes I know one of the songs we did a while back, uh, NBA young boy, we had live saxophone on there. And we were in a crappy studio, not the microphones you'd want to use, not the preamps you'd want to use, not the computer you'd want to use. But if you're in that situation as an engineer, you need to see what you have around you and you need to make it work. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was just one of those people called upon um, is because they know wherever we were at, I will pull up with whatever gear I have, use whatever gear they have, and we will come out with a song after. So as far as uh, Travis Scott went, um, I'd work a lot with the producer, June the Genius, um, he just did some stuff on Drake's last album, on Travis Scott's last album. And it was really just a collaborative effort. Um, I think that day we were just making a bunch of samples um, with some guitars. And, you know, we were just in the studio chopping them up, being the guitar player. And it kind of just got passed back and forth to some people and a whole team collaborative effort. Um, and then next thing you know, you know, he told us the placement there. So actually, so I didn't get to meet Travis. We did the beat in Atlanta. June flew out to Houston. And through some people met through there and exchanged the beat. And next thing you know, it was history. Um, just uh, have you actually um, sat in a studio with Travis when he's recording? Uh, with Travis, I have not. Travis, I have not. No. Okay, a lot of the so, bigger Atlanta artists, but not Travis. No. That was my question. That was going to be my question, because when it comes to like the mixing process, one of the interesting things that I found working with Travis is the first day. I don't know if he was doing this out of respect, but like. The first day I worked with him, there might have been two takes where he's just standing at the microphone. And then he eventually goes like, Guru, do you mind if I like record myself? So it got to a point where like I set up the microphone for him, set up the preamp, kind of did the game structure. But he's so fast in terms of like recording himself. He's now sitting in my seat. I set the mic next to him and he's just doing takes on his own and actually throwing plugins on because he knows his plugin game so well. Wow. And that was going to be my question. Like, do you kind of keep his plug-in chain when you're when you're mixing these records? Because what I found was I was like, okay, I might as well just bounce this down and keep this as an audio file because he's sort of, that's part of his sound. He's designed his own sound, you know, and that was all him sitting yeah, yeah. in that chair. You know, and at first he probably just wanted to do it anyway, but didn't want to move me out. I'm like, yo, if that's how you work. That's perfect. You know, that's part of, I'm saying, like, being able to read the room. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, perfect. So, yeah, so, so one one person I noticed that it's exactly like that is Young Thug. Uh, young Thug, I mean, I, I know we've probably all seen the, the memes and the pictures of him in front of the computer. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, Young Thug, he knows Pro Tools in and out. He knows what to do. And, you know, and I've been around, you know, in sessions with him, you know, engineering and with other engineers where if you're not as quick, and that's one of the big things as an engineer, you have to be quicker than they can think. 
Because if you are not as, as quick as they can think, you may have an artist like Travis or like Thug where they will ask you, hey, can you scoot over so I can do what I need to do because you're not keeping up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, tra- you know, Travis, unfortunately, I can't speak on his process, but it sounds similar to Thug where, you know, they know the sound that they're going for. They know the buttons on there. So like you said, it's reading the room, you know, if they're okay with that. And I've had other artists where they will try pointing something out to me on the screen and I'll just hand them the mouse. And it's not out of disrespect, like, hey, you know, you do this yourself. It's, right. I know we're going to get this a lot done quicker if you just point and click and then pass it back over to me and we keep it up moving there. Or sometimes it's just the thought process of, like, they may be thinking of something and instead of having to go, okay, go now. You know what I mean? They're sitting there and they're thinking of something and then you may be wanting to go or, to, you know, sort of like with me and Jay, it's almost like I, he doesn't have to say go. You know, like, I kind of know to stop if he's thinking of a word or something and he kind of gets, then I'm going, you know, or I can like sort of push him to let's get through this. But I found it interesting with like, you know, Travis, where not only was it just because of him wanting to do it, he's used to doing it that way. Just his knowledge of these are the plugins that I use and I've created this sound for myself. So when, when he's doing like, okay, let me just pull up these three plugins and, and this is my sound. I was like, Hey, keep that. And it's easy for me to just bounce down. And now that, that is what it is, you know? So- yeah. And that's where I tell sorry, a lot of artists too, you know, learn a little bit about the, the, the programs that you're recording in. Cause it, you know, it definitely makes it easier when you can communicate with the engineer exactly, you know, not exactly, or at least, you know, get a ballpark of what sound you're trying to reach, you know, what you're trying to achieve. Because if you know the screen you're looking at, and can communicate that stuff, it's going to make these sessions run a whole lot smoother. I say for people like this so they can kind of understand it, right? If you have a professional race car driver, he's not the mechanic, right? He's a professional race car driver, but he knows enough about the car that while he's in the race and he comes back, he's not going to be like the same person who just brings a car in and goes, yo, something's clanking. You know, the yeah. professional race car driver is going to go, yo, the carburetor needs to be replaced or you need to replace this. T-. So now me as the engineer, I'm the mechanic. I get to go in and I'm supposed to be the expert on how to do this the fastest. But the the better you can describe the problem to me, you know, what I mean, as that as, his job is I want the best car so I can win the race. But he's been around cars his whole life. So obviously he's going to know a little something about engines, but he may not know how to build an engine right where the engineer knows how to build the engine. It's, it's, it's one of those like things where there's a symbiotic relationship, but the more that the car, the race car driver knows about every specific thing about the car, the easier he can explain that to his mechanic. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I have a question myself and it's part of, you know, some larger questions that are coming in through the, the chat, but both of you describe scenarios in which, um, so for you, Jess, it was it was being in a studio uh, that was less than ideal in terms of the the architecture. Um, for you, Guru, it was you explaining the Travis Scott scenario in which you you brought the mic out of the vocal room and put it by him at the mixing station. Given that change of environment, or given the the environmental uh, limitations, what are some strategies that you use to still get as much as you can out of the mic in spite of, you know, the acoustic problems that, that surround it. Um, for me, you know, the beautiful, beautiful thing that came out are, are these uh, acoustic reflectors, like the SE1, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, the, the, I think it's the, the Studio Electronics, like, uh, microphone reflector, right? Because 
what that does is people that are in bedrooms, people that are in untreated spaces, it allows you to at least quickly get something that's going to deaden your sound. So I could take somebody and put them in their bedroom and say, look, get a carpet, put the carpet underneath, you know what I mean? The microphone so that we're kind of killing a little bit of the reflection coming off the floor, you know, get this like SE, you know, and there's, there's a, I'm just saying that one because that's the one that comes to mind, but there's a bunch of them, whichever one you can afford. Right. And that sort of goes around your microphone and then understanding acoustics enough that you know that it's not like putting egg crate on. Like if I'm standing here and I was doing vocals, I'm not going to put egg crate on the whole wall. Right. I'm going to put it right behind me. I only need that one right behind me to sort of deaden this thing. So if I'm in an open space, I use those sort of things like carpets and those studio reflectors save you. And there's different versions, whether or not you're just doing vocals or whether or not, say, you're doing a guitar. They have ones that like kind of go like this and you're sticking like, you know, a small condenser microphone in there. Just those things sort of save you. And to me, they're relatively cheap, but they make a huge difference versus like somebody just recording in an open space that isn't treated. And you start to get all this reflection on the microphone, which is something I have to really really concentrate on to take out you know what i mean there's there's sort of two things that i can't really fix which is distorted vocals like there's nothing i can do if your vocals are just distorted and then if you have all of this room on your vocal it's very hard for me to take that out so i, I think those things are, are just godsends in today's world where a lot of people are just recording in their bedrooms yeah one thing i mean to add on to that um i know a lot of the sessions that i've been in a lot of these people, they uh, they want to bring in all of their friends and their family and uh, have that whole entourage behind them. And, you know, sometimes it sets the vibe for them to get them that song that they need. Uh, but you got to remember, a lot of times these guys, too, I think it's shifted to the point where they want to be uh, right up at the console recording and not in the booth. And it's letting the people around you know, like, hey, we are recording. We need you to, you know, maybe turn your cell phones on silent or, you know, just calm down with the conversations a little bit. And the artist is going to appreciate that. The artist is not going to say to you, don't talk to my friends like that. When you are trying to look out for the artist and get the best sound that you possibly can, they're going to tell their friends, hey, you know, let's let's keep it down a little bit. Um, but like Guru was saying, you know, one of the things that I use is the Chaotica eyeball. Um, I believe it might have came out of somebody in Atlanta. I could be wrong, but I think it's around. Yep. And there it goes right there. Yeah. <laughs> It's like maybe 250 bucks. I can put it in a backpack, put it in a suitcase, it's foam, and set it up wherever I need it. And I'm happy with the sound that I'm able to get from it. So definitely just the mix of those two things. But yeah, knowing your surroundings and you know doing what you can do, the carpet, the padding, blankets. But also um, from what I've noticed in a lot of these songs recently is don't feel like you need to deaden everything possible. Yeah. I've heard some of these mixes where a lot of times, sometimes you hear their chains in the songs. And to me, that's pretty cool. You know, if I can hear them, I can picture them in the studio, you know, jumping up and down and hearing those chains. Don't feel like you need to tell them, hey, take off all your jewelry, take off this, take off that. You know, you just got to find a nice balance between the two and something that's going to complement the song that you're recording. Yeah, you, know, you know, let me let me say something about, too, about um, Young Guru's style of, of recording vocals. I, I remember, and maybe this is just a remnant of the old guard of engineering, the traditional engineers that would record like three or four or five different takes of the lead, or they would ask the, the vocalist to keep recording. Lead. Yeah. Do another lead, do another lead. And it creates a very specific vocal texture. Mm-hmm. Um, what I appreciated about a lot of the Jay-Z recordings was that it just sounded like one clean take and it felt really personal. It felt like mm-hmm. I'm face to face with the artist that, that whose vocals you tracked. Right. Um, 
what made you kind of go against the grain when recording just one strong lead rather than layer, 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 layer? Well, first of all, that's just Jay's style, number one. Um, a lot of the time, and you have to give it to him in terms of people have this misconception about like, uh, they, you know, there's this famous thing that people always say, oh, Jay does it all in one take. And he does because of the fact that he constructs and goes over the rhyme so much before he even steps in the booth to record it that by the time he gets in the booth, he's memorized the rhyme. There's no paper. There's no none of that, right? He doesn't write it down, but the time is spent outside, you know, where we're kicking it about, is the verse good? Am I saying the right thing? He's saying it over and over to himself as he's pacing back and forth, mumbling to himself. You know, everybody's heard about the Jay-Z mumble. So by the time he gets in the booth, it's simply to record it, right? And, And that leads to his style of, like, him, who he is as a person, you know, his personality, I think that one take, you know, not a whole lot of ad libs, not a whole lot of like, even like say the Tupac style of like adding this, this uh, Tupac was famous for like adding another layer underneath of his lead vocal that was in a different, a lower texture, right? That was sort of like Pac style. Jay's style wasn't that way. And I think it was a thing of um, finding the right microphone for him. So you know, classic, classic case of just me using traditionally throughout his career. I used either a Neumann 87 or a Neumann 67 um, going into a Avalon 737. So for almost the majority of his career, that was the vocal chain. Um, there were certain times where we would step into other people's you know, worlds where, like, say, Kanye might be using a 1073 into a CL1B, you know, and I have no problem recording Jay that way. Then, you know, a couple years ago, um, Stuart, who is Beyonce's engineer, came across these beautiful um, Telefunking 251s, which I'm not telling everybody you got to go out and this. It's a very expensive microphone, but it's just a beautiful mic. So when I heard Jay, you know, it was just one of those days where it was like, oh, well, B just got done recording. Jay needs to record. The microphone's already up. I used that when I was just like, whoa, this thing sounds great on him. So now my chain is that. Uh, Telefunken 251 into just the preamp section of the 737, skipping the compressor, and then I go into a CL1B. So, you know, it's it's just by happenstance. And then I went out and found a 251 for myself and been like, yo, I want Jay to have this sort of microphone. Um, but it's just his style. Once he gets on the microphone, he's just going to rip through the whole vocal and you better be ready. You know, sometimes there's even takes where I've had to turn the preamp down real quick so the first couple words are too loud, and I'll go in and, like, click gain those, but he's just going to go, you know, and you got to catch it. So very rarely does he need to, like, punch in or, you know, I, I can probably count on my hand the times that he maybe punched in on something, and that was just for ad-libs. Like, he will do the whole take, you know, in one take, and that's what allows it to be so continuous, so smooth, or like the things on 444 where he, like, literally had a cold through a lot of those sessions, and you can hear it in the vocal takes. If you listen to Smile, if you listen to things like that, where he had a cold, and I was, I would normally be like, yo, let's wait till your cold is gone to record. He's like, no, it's going to add to the, t- I like the way my voice sounds like this. It sounds more personal. It sounds like I'm sick, you know? And these are those type of records. So with 444 being such a personal you know, record, he was like, nah, that's adding on to the texture where I would have tried to be like technically correct. And he's going for feel, 
where it's like, no, I'm supposed to sound like this. So, you know, you, 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 the ones where I was just like, let's just take it and we'll see what it is just to do the song. At the end, I was like, let's do it over. He's like, no, keep those. It sounds exactly the way I want it to sound. So it, it just becomes a texture thing for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, as a consumer, love that sound. And then also as someone who's certainly not an engineer, but I'll track vocals as a producer, mm-hmm. loves that that technique. It just feels so authentic and so uh, natural. Just It's the human voice. It's not... It's not like uh, some kind of hybrid human. I, I don't know. That's just me. Um, but Jess, it, I want to ask you. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. To build on that, though, it depends solely on the artist. So that's a Jay-Z yeah. thing, right? Like, say, back in the day when I was working with Nelly, Nelly is the exact opposite, right? He's going to do 10 tracks, right? And, and they're all going to be panned. With, and that's what made Nelly sound Nelly sound. It was like just these big, you know what I mean? That's why it sounded so big. Or... You know, if there are certain um, MCs that like the end of their words, like when Beans used to rhyme a lot, the end of the word kind of carries over. And then he's got to go on another track because he's purposely carrying over this word. So we would be bouncing in between. And this is on tape. You know what I mean? Like two tracks because he's sort of layering over top of himself. It just depends on the style of the artist, you know, sort of thing. So with Jay, it's just it's just one concentrated thing. With Beans, it's like these intricate, like, words are supposed to layer on top of each other, you know? And then with like, I'm just trying to think of ones real quick, you know, with Nelly, it was like build up these huge vocal takes and then spread them out so that they're like taking up the whole spectrum with vocals. Appreciate that, that insight. Cause yeah, now, now thinking back on the, on the Nelly takes, I, yeah, like my brain is recounting that there are definitely a lot of different takes. It's kind of more of a pop, approach i think from what i've i've heard from engineers um so jess i want to ask you a question uh be, before we run out of time because we have about uh 17 18 minutes left um you you license beats online with Beatstars, i know but Beatstars always also gives you the option to sell a service through their platform and one of your services is mixing um what advice can you give engineers for selling that type of service online and and managing expectations and communicating with a customer so that everything goes smoothly out of that kind of transaction um i think one thing that i've been successful in is don't act like a business like you are a person you are dealing with real people treat these people like we are all humans um, I see all these people where, you know, they just spam out, you know, a flyer, like, you know, $100 mix, $100 mix. Like, you know, you got to be personal with these people. Um, and also, you know, know what your, you know, I don't want to say know what your worth is, but know what type of clients you can bring in and for what type of fee. Um, I know when I first started, I mean, I was mixing tracks for free. And then once I had too many free tracks, I started doing $25 and $50 and just moving up the scale to knowing, you know, what you can bring in. Um, BeatStars has been great because it allows me to direct people to a website where, you know, sometimes a lot of people, you know, when you're dealing with money and transactions, you don't want to just send money to somebody you don't know through Cash App or somebody you just met on Twitter and Instagram. So I can direct them right to that website and say, hey, this is what it is. You know, this is what you're going to get out of it. Um, You know, you can pay right through here. Um, One of the big things that I do is I don't charge people for revisions on their mix. Um, I feel like, I mean, obviously your business model is your business model, but 
I want you to be as happy as you can possibly be at the end of the mix, whether it takes us three tries, whether it takes us 20 tries, because that's what's going to get you to come back. And if I'm going to keep charging you money over and over and over and over again to try to make you happy, I mean, that business model just doesn't work in, in what I try to do. Um, but it really, yeah, just being personal with people and trying to do the best job that you could possibly do in this. Um, you know, I know engineers, you know, we are kind of, uh, in the background, a little bit more quiet in the music business, but we play a big role in this and in the songs that we help create. So it's just valuing that and, um, you know, not trying to rush through it. Um, I know some people engineer, you know, they are also artists and producers and graphic designers and everything like that. Um, you know, I try to find the people that I work with that focus on their one or two areas. Um, you know, I don't want to hire an engineer who's also a rapper, a singer, a producer, a graphic designer, because I don't feel like I'm going to get the best work out of them. So it's really just letting people know, you know, this is what I focus on. This is what I'm here for. And let's make the best possible song that we can. Okay, so to, to speak to that point, we've had some people asking about uh, an engineer's equity in a, in a song that they engineer. And um, appropriately enough, on July 4th, um, Jess, you tweeted, I love engineering. It's, it's really my passion, but engineers don't get the credit, money, or the recognition they deserve. And I know that was a big point of not just engineers, you know, producers, songwriters as well. When everything transitioned over to streaming, liner notes kind of disappeared. Slowly but surely. <laughs> say, say oh, not on title. Yeah, yeah, shout out to title. Um, and that was a major appeal for title. And I think it has to do with the fact that they're created by artists and not necessarily, you know, vent- just venture capitalists. But um, with regard to how an engineer can eat off of a, a record or an album. How does, how is that in your experience work? Cause for producers, we're always talking about fighting for, you know, our publishing, our points, our credit engineers have a very similar battle. And I'd say it's, it's even less visible to the, to the industry than the, the struggle of a producer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know, I mean, to the people that don't know, um, you know, a lot of times when you're starting off as an engineer, um, you're probably not going to get points on an album. You're probably not going to get royalties. Usually, you know, from what I've seen, I get a flat rate hourly when I'm in the studio recording, I get a flat rate when I mix a song. Um, and that's about it. So it's really either one, uh, finding the artist where you can charge that amount, where you can comfortably live off of it or finding these other avenues like beat stars, where I can sell templates if I want to, for recording and mixing, I can sell services, um, I can sell consultations where I can talk to other engineers and try to put in my two cents or give advice on how to navigate things. Um, but I think nowadays, you know, even with producers too, we've all learned it where we're not in a day. I mean, I wasn't even you know up there in the day where you could just do that one or two things and live off of that. It's now we have the internet where, you know, you can Google producer and you will find thousands, maybe millions at this point of producers and engineers so you really need to have your hands in multiple buckets and not just to do it for the money, but make sure your hands are in multiple buckets of things that you enjoy doing and you are passionate about. Um, you know, I do the mixing, I do the recording sessions, I do the leasing, the beats. Um, you know, I'm starting to learn a little bit about video editing and trying to see, you know, what if I'm that engineer at the session that can also take pictures while you make your beat or, you know, it's just trying to be creative and bring different things into it. Um, but, you know, for, you know, I've definitely had the DMs of asking people about the engineer thing. Um, 
you know, just like I said, you know, engineers, I hope one day where we can get, you know, even if it's a tiny bit of those royalties or the percentages, and I have seen articles where it looks like it could be moving into the route, uh, but just knowing for now where, you know, all of us, we got to put in that footwork and know um, it's not just a, a one lane for this. You know, you got to, you got to be doing multiple things here. Yeah. Uh, definitely curious to hear your take on that as well. Guru. Um, it's, it's different for me. It's a little interesting. What, what you're speaking about is was sort of common with rock um, engineers where they would definitely get points on an album um, based off the fact that they were designing a lot of the sound of the album. You know, if you're recording a drum, you know, the microphone that you select or microphones that you select is going to make a big difference. And, and the amps that you select and, you know, that was more common in sort of like the rock genre. Um, I did not start getting points on albums until way later in my career to where my name sort of carried that thing where it was just like, okay, well, if you want me to work on this album, then this comes along with it, right? I need a point on these particular albums or the fact that like the people that I'm working with, again, they are very close to me um, and they care. So they're just like, okay, I I have no problem giving you points on an album, but that is not normal. Um, the same way Justin just said, we normally work off of flat fees and we, we work off of either time or a flat fee for, you know, a mix that we're doing. Um, so it would be, it would be something that you have to negotiate with the artist, but I don't want people to sit here and go, okay, well, if I don't get a percentage of, or points on the album, then I'm not doing it. It's, it's rare. It's not common practice. And in the music business, there are no rules. There's just common practices. That's like the the best advice I could give somebody like you make up your own rules, but there are sort of like common things that happen. So if you can get to that point of getting points on an album, you know, that's a great thing. And there's sometimes where our job sort of blurs. So it depends on what you're doing. Right. So it's like, you know, 40 with Drake is doing more than just engineering. He's also producing, he's going over other people's, you know, mean songs and helping producing them that he may not have been the person who constructed the beat, but then Drake is looking at him to be like, okay, we'll do your filter on this part and add on. And, you know, so yes, he's getting points on that. So it just depends on your situation, but you know, you have to, everything's a negotiation. So you got to negotiate the points part first, but I wouldn't concentrate on just, looking for points as an engineer first. If you're the producer, absolutely. And, 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 and you know, you, Payne, can, can, you know, you talk about that all the time in all of your videos. But as the engineer, it's sort of something you got to work your way into. And also, just to add on that, uh, you know, tread lightly on that situation as an engineer because nowadays, if, if you are not willing to do it, there is thousands of other who will take your spot real quick. Absolutely. So don't give up. Yeah. Don't give up a song or a job because yeah, you're not going to get a point or you're not going to get this or get that. It'll come all down the line. Just slowly take your time. Cause yeah, like I said, you know, if you say no, they'll go grab somebody else. What, what I will say is this though, because of the fact of the way that we work nowadays, I see a lot of job blurring where engineers are saving producers and they don't get the credit for it. So the producer may just hand in a beat and the engineer is the guy I'm watching doing the drops and, and like fixing the song and aligning so many things that it's like, no, you're, you're actually producing this record and you need to like let this person know that you are, produ- like the artist sometimes doesn't even know. They're just handing this to you. They don't know if you or the producer did what. So it's like, you got to kind of sometimes, and I see this happen with a lot of my younger engineers and they're so, 
timid because they want to keep the job. But it's like, nah, you got to at some point stand up for yourself and be like, yo, I'm doing all the work. If the producer's not doing the drops, at least, if they're not the ones, like, if you sat there and you did all the stutter edits and you did all the, like, you're producing. So, like, at least have the conversation to let the person know, I transformed this raw record into this final product. And in that position, when you step into that world of production, I feel like you deserve points on the album. So we have about eight minutes left. I want to answer, or I want to ask some of the questions that have been uh, coming through in the chat. Um, I guess this is a, a quick one. What interface do you prefer to use, especially on a mobile setup? Uh, Apollo Twin. Apollo Twin. Okay, that was easy. There we go. All right. <laughs> yeah. This this is the lightning round. All right. Um, how much how much headroom should a producer leave in a two track when they're sending it to an engineer uh-huh. if if it's a two track? Great question. I, just real quick, I would love for things to bounce around. Like what, what for me would be zero VU, and that depends on your bit depth. But in in digital, that's probably around like minus twelve. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> To not get as technical, just stop slamming your stuff. I mean, people, producers, <laughs> they're sending them, and the beats are loud as they could possibly be, and then I'm bringing them down, maybe 7, 10, 12 dB. Like, you know, at least if you're going to send me a beat that's that, you know, high up there, send me one that also isn't, so at right. least I can record to that one there. But, yeah, just – I know I know there's this loudness wars thing, but it ends up uh, coming around to hurt us. And, we'll and, let's, and let's be more specific just so that we're very common man, right? We get it. When you made the beat, and when you put it on, you know what I mean? When you emailed it to somebody, you made it as loud as possible. You slammed the L2 on there. You had Ozone 8 or whatever on it, and you made it as loud as possible because you're trying to sell your beat, right? Now that you sold the beat, now go back and take that off the master. Or like just said, send me both. Send me one that has the mastering chain on it and one that doesn't so that I can record the vocals. If there's no space, it's nowhere for me to go. Like if your beat is literally clipping the red all i'm gonna do is turn it down and it's gonna sound weak and one thing too i mean as an engineer if i got an email where you have two beats the mastered and the unmastered right there i'm just gonna be like okay this is something i don't get so you might stand out just above the others off of doing that so mm-hmm. a little tip there for producers yeah. yeah producers are constantly asking how to stand out and a lot of the time it's not even necessarily their beats is how responsive they are how they can anticipate concerns, how they can work with other people, so forth. I'm, I'm not going to take on more time. Here's another question uh, no, but, but, but that can, relates can, to that. That's, that's, a, that's a great point, and I think when you say stand out, okay, you, you sold the beat. One of the things that I love to work with people who give me everything I need without asking. So on this last Jadena album, when they gave me all of the sessions, they give me the session with everything broke down. They give me an instrumental. They give me a main. They tell me what the tempo is. They tell me what the key is. Like all of these things that that I need in order to do what I that, that I would have to sit and then I'm going to put a plug in order to find out the key. I'm going to sit and have to figure out the tempo. I'm going to sit and have to like you know if you give me everything I need, I'm be like yes, I love working. With you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So a, a related question then is um, when producers are, are sending stems, should they bounce wet stems? Should they bounce dry stems? Should they include both? I like both. If, if you have something that is wet, send me the example. If I can't get to where you are, then maybe I'll use your wet one. But I'm going off the fact that you're sending it to me because I have a lot more 
experience with that than you do. So if it's something that's super vital to the sound, just just send me both. I like to have dry stems so that I can start from the beginning. I'm trapped into your wet stems if you send them to me. So those things, I like to have both. And I would also say, please make mono the things that are mono and keep the things that are stereo, stereo. A lot of times now, because we're working DAWs, people just bounce and hit bounce the stems. And they there may be five or six mono things that you're now sending to me as stereo, and I got to figure out which is which because I want to be able to pan things in a mix. Yeah, I mean, I agree the same thing. I mean, if anything don't just send me dry stems because there might be something that you'd like that, you know, in your mix and your production that the artist likes that I'm not able to replicate or able to get the same sound. So it's more trouble for me when I'm trying to reach your sound when you could have just sent me the one there. So yeah, like you're saying, send me both of them there because the more is better. So here's someone who's asking, he asked this question a bunch of times. I just couldn't find a good time to ask that. Do either of you have any, experience with these um these microphones that like the slate digital that are emulation mics that interface with the and and what are your thoughts on them if you've used so i know personally i have a slate vms um i've had it now for probably about five six years and i love it um when i was at one of the studios in atlanta we were able to do a shootout between the sony c800 emulating and the studio owner was a little upset that he spent as much money in as he did on the C800 <laughs> because of how close the sound was. So uh, off of that, I mean, I- I'm a fan of them. And the other thing, like we were saying, too, is you're not going to get the average listener going, oh, they're using the emulated C800. They should have used the regular C800 on there. But I, I am a fan of-, of their microphones. I absolutely love them. All, all it is is really is an EQ curve. You know, that's-, that's all it is. It's an EQ curve on a different microphone. I, I love the emulations. Again, because it's like, yeah, you go go out and buy one, and, and do I want certain microphones? Yeah, but if I have to, like, again, I'm very conscious of people's pockets. So if I gotta, you know what I mean? If I gotta make a choice, I want the utility knife. I want the one knife that's gonna be able to do everything. That's it. And how do you feel about preamp emulation too? Because a lot of, you know, like I know when, um, or not even necessarily preamp emulation, just any kind of emulation. I know. Um, you're you're a big fan of the I don't know if you still are, are using that as your go-to vocal compression the Waves Fairchild 660 but with with all I mean there's now an Avalon um VST out so have, have you Okay well there you go yes yeah, <laughs> my engineer friend says he just got it and he sound and then he loves it and he's gone through I think two two Avalons as well so I guess we answered our own question it's it's 128 I'm getting uncomfortable cuz we're on a strict schedule one more time um thank you both so much for for an hour and a half of pretty much nonstop information uh, I know I appreciate it I know the community appreciates it I know the you know, probably about a thousand viewers that were tuned in live appreciate it as well. And then it's going to be archived on BeatStars.World. Um, in addition to that, can you can you both one more time shout out your social media so people can connect with you if they if they would like to? Yeah, I'm on a Just the Engineer, J U S the Engineer, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, so shoot me a DM, comment, whatever questions you have. Uh, I'm here to provide as much information as I can. Uh, young guru seven six three on Instagram and young underscore guru on Twitter. 